my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our show today is with Minnesota's Department of National Resources Commissioner, Sarah Strauman. She's been with the organization for about five years and was selected as commissioner earlier this year. She previously served as policy director for Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness and is a former two-term mayor of the city of Ramsey. We talked about DNR stewardship, how they engage with the public, and statistical bias in big fish stories. The show was recorded live at the Amsterdam Barn Hall in downtown St. Paul. I hope you enjoy it. You are the commissioner of the DNR of Minnesota. I know what the DNR is, and you know what the DNR is, but let's pretend there are some people in the audience who don't know what the DNR is. Would you give a kind of brief explanation of what the DNR is and what it does? Absolutely. I'd love to. Uh, So the DNR is our state agency that is charged with uh, managing the state's natural resources. And our mission is to work with Minnesotans to protect Minnesota's natural resources, to provide for outdoor recreation, and to provide for commercial use of our natural resources in a sustainable way. So um, what that really means is we connect people with the outdoors in a way that benefits all Minnesotans. We regulate uses to protect ecological integrity and, uh, and the needs of current and future generations. And we manage the state's lands, waters, uh, to um, provide for a whole, and wildlife to provide for all the suite of benefits, economic benefits, recreational benefits, um, ecological benefits, all those kinds of things. So I'm sure in your line of work, there's no sort of typical day, but would you give us kind of an insight in, I don't know, what is the role of a commissioner? What, what does that look like? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. There's, there's no typical day. I would agree with Mother Nature. Uh, the job is not easy, but it's a great job. Um, and really, the, the role of the commissioner is to provide the guidance uh, for the direction of the agency for that work across all of these broad missions. And so really, um, I, I say my job is probably more um, managing people than managing uh, our natural resources. People are part of nature, too. People are part of nature. And really, um, I think that's what's so wonderful about our agency is, is we are at that intersection of science and people. And so we manage all of um, people's opinions and their values about our resources, as well as use all of the data and information that we have. So um, it, it's a pretty exciting job. So in doing some kind of research to talk to you, a lot of very nice things came up. Uh, a lot of people have to say wonderful things about you on kind of both sides of the political aisle. Uh, lots of wonderful things like you're the perfect person for this job or the Star Tribune called you a cool head for a hot seat. Why, why is the DNR commissioner a hot seat? Why, why do people think... Like, oh, no, because I don't think people think of the DNR as, you know, one of the more controversial positions of government. You know, I think the issue um, why people think the DNR is a hot seat is because uh, Minnesotans are really passionate about their natural resources. I will tell you before coming to work for the DNR, I did not know that fish could elicit so much passion and, and, you know, so much emotion, uh, but they do. Uh, and so, you know, I think one You haven't of, seen The Little Mermaid. Uh, actually, I have. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, I think if you think about um, deer management, for example, so there are so many different perspectives. If you are a deer hunter, your perspective may be the importance of a family tradition and spending time at deer camp, or it may be about uh, filling your freezer with meat that your family is going to eat. If you are a uh, farmer, you're really concerned about maybe having too many deer and the crop damage that that deer do. If you're an insurance company, you're concerned about, you know, what deer vehicle uh, collisions are doing to insurance rates. And and if you're a a wildlife watcher and you feed deer in your backyard, you know, you really enjoy seeing the fawns come in. So there's so many opinions. And so the problem is that no matter what your science says and what um, you might make a decision on, there's somebody that's going to be unhappy with that decision. Somebody's going to be happy and somebody's going to be unhappy. And so that's how, why it can be a difficult decide, job. How do you decide who to make unhappy? <laughs> well, we, uh, you know, I think number one, um, we're, we're a science-driven agency. So, you know, we really look at the, the science and data. So um, in this example, you know, we have lots of uh, good information about deer populations. Um, but we also try to get as much input as we can from the public to understand what the spectrum of values uh, is and then um, try to balance that. And if there are commonalities where we can make you know, multiple people happy, that's obviously the best space. And sometimes, uh, often, we can't do that all the way. And then you know, we have to kind of make a, a judgment call about what's best for the most people. Yeah, it feels like... I, I guess in kind of looking at some past issues that people might complain about, oh, you are not doing this enough, so you're not letting me drill a new well for my housing development. And then a couple of years later, why did you let me drill that well? That was a terrible decision. Like, it, it seems, I don't know, unfair in some ways because it, it's kind of the people are going to be mad either way sometimes. Yeah, but I, it, and that's true. I think... Um, you know, the way I look at it, too, is that because we have such a broad mission and there's, there's such a diversity of opinions and, and, and there is a lot of passion, it really is an opportunity for us at the DNR and, uh, to uh, facilitate these conversations and to bring all of the diversity of perspectives together and that passion that people have and try to make the best decisions that we can for Minnesota, uh, for Minnesotans and for our resources. And so that's really a tremendous opportunity. And I feel really lucky to have that as my job. Would you mind going into some detail talking about how you get some of that research? And I guess when you're soliciting feedback from the public on something, how do you go about that? Is, are, are, do you like throw a message in a bottle and see who finds it on the lake and then make your decision based on that? Um, we don't use message in a bottle, as far as I know, but we do have a lot of tools that we use. Um, and so it kind of depends on the issue. When, when we're talking about um, fish management, fisheries management, for example, one of the tools we use um, both to get information about people's values and their habits fishing, but also about the fishery itself, is um, ang- our angler surveys. And so um, we call them creels. And they really are. Why do you call them that? <laughs> uh, it's it's just the the term for them. They're really angler surveys, and I think this is one of the things that we're trying to do. Is is 
use language that more people understand, right? So I like to call them angler surveys um, because that's really what they are. We have uh, staff that are out uh, either on the lakes um, at some of the smaller lakes or they're at the access, the public accesses uh, on some of the larger lakes. And, uh, you know, they interview people as they're uh, out fishing or, or coming on or off the lake. And they ask people, you know, what they are catching, how many fish they caught, how big they were, what species they were. So we get a sense of how many people were out there fishing, what's the pressure, what, how many fish are they catching. And so that gives us some data about um, you know, the, the health of the population in terms of knowing what people are catching, but because also if, what people's preferences If anything, preferences fishermen are. are known for telling true stories <laughs> about how many fish they catch. Funny you should mention that because we do actually have a factor in there for what we call angler bias. Uh-huh. <laughs> What do you know that percentage? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> but it but it is a real thing, as you point oh, out. Yeah, so it's it. not just one of those kind of tales, right? Okay. <laughs> um, so those are uh, some ways that people interact uh, with the DNR. But um, w- what are some ways that the DNR is trying to kind of make nature relevant to people? Because we've already talked about uh, a lot about uh, fishing and uh, hunting, somewhat, but. Uh, I think a lot of people also camp. And so how does the DNR engage people with that? Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's really important to note that um, a lot of people do think about hunting and fishing, and we do spend a lot of time working on those. But there is a whole spectrum of ways that people connect with the outdoors, whether they are camping or just visiting our state parks, using our state trails, wildlife watching, wildlife photography, um, Uh, One of the examples we use, we have a great photo in our office of people flying a kite out at Blue Mound State Park, and I like to use that as a reminder of all of the ways that people interact uh, with nature. And so, um, you know, encouraging people to uh, get out and use our state parks, encouraging people to use our trails, encouraging people to, to... Um, watch wildlife or whatever way they want to connect because um, it's really important for people to have those personal connections with our resources and with nature because people tend to care about the things with which they have personal experience and some personal connection. And so if we think about the next generation of people who are going to care about these things, I think that's really important. So, Does the DNR have a position on glamping? Have you heard about that? I, I have heard about that, yeah. would, would you mind uh, providing a definition for anyone who hasn't heard about that? Yeah, so glamping, if people haven't heard that, is sort of a um, smushing of terms, camping and glamour. And so it's kind of a higher end of camping. And, and for people who might not like roughing it so much, um, you get really nice tents and there's more amenities. They tend to be platform tents and kinds of things. So we actually have a whole variety of camping experiences that we offer in our state parks from, um, and actually uh, across, we also have camping in our forest recreation areas. And so those tend to be more rustic. Uh, we have sites that you may need to walk into. And so you take <sighs> your stuff and you hike in. Yep. Or, or some that you boat into. I know, right? <laughs> and then we have, um, we have actually some yurts. Uh, really? Yeah, that, that people can camp in. We have a couple parks that have teepees you can camp in. And then we have camper cabins Where as are well. the uh, campgrounds with butlers and <laughs> maybe a mixologist or something along those lines? Do, yeah. Are there plans for those? Um, not in our parks. Well, yeah. We're no, not going to get no any mixologist. Sorry. Soon. 
Yeah. That's all right. We, we do have Wi-Fi now at a couple of our parks. And um, Lake Vermilion, uh, Sudan Underground Mine State Park is, is our newest state park with the Lake Vermilion addition. And that park does have Wi-Fi available. It's kind of a 21st century park. And Why did you decide to add Wi-Fi? It seems like the perfect, oh, I can't work this weekend. I'm going up north. There's no Internet available. I know. You know, it's kind of a big debate because there are people that certainly are in that camp of, uh, and I'm one of them, I love it when I can't have a cell phone connection because, sorry, you know, I'm just out of range. Uh, But for some people, they can't get away from work or they have children or parents that they're caring for and need to be connected. And so that allows a mechanism for them to still enjoy our outdoor experiences in our state parks but have that connection. Um. Something that came up in the news recently when we talked backstage about, and this is probably very controversial this time of year, is Minnesota lake docks are getting too big. And I suppose that's kind of along the lines with clamping. And so why do you hate luxurious docks where people just want to spread out? Yeah, so this, that's a great question because um, one of the things that we often get is why do you just hate that? Yeah. Why do you hate, you know, yeah. large docks? Why do you hate farmers? Why yeah. Do you hate, yeah. So I think it's always really um, good and one of the ways that we can help connect people to our work and to the outdoors is to, to help um, explain and remind people why those restrictions are there in the first place. And so with, with lakes and the limitations on the size of docks, that's really there to protect um, important habitat along the shoreline. It's there to protect the scenic features of the lakes um, and values that Minnesotans decided were important uh, and put them either in our laws or, or into our rules. So um, with that particular issue, I, I find it really interesting. We're having a lot of issues similar around lake areas. Um, so whether it's the size of docks or the size of boats, another big controversy on lakes is the use of wake boats. And if you are somebody who likes to wake surf, you're perfectly happy with them. If you are a shoreline owner concerned about erosion and the coming from those wake boats, um, you hate them. And so one of the things, you know, people come to the DNR, why do you allow that? Or why don't you allow my dock? And one of the things that we're really trying to do is um, facilitate as the DNR conversations, again, between different points of view so that the people with the large docks can hear directly from the people who enjoy the more pristine lake view or the people who are concerned about the fish habitat without having to have that conversation filtered through through the DNR. And I think facilitating those conversations um, helps, helps our citizens become more informed about issues and really creates a better understanding of the full suite of values around them and then ultimately helps better inform our decisions around those kinds of things. So it's sort of like a matchmaking service, except for people that disagree. Uh, yeah, it's probably not how I would describe it, but... <laughs> no, that's okay. Those people need to date, Whatever too. works that's for fine. you, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that's important because I think, uh, at least when I was growing up, the if we saw a DNR officer, we would say, oh, no, a DNR officer, <laughs> which I think is what most people say because they think, oh, no, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm, I, and maybe you are doing something bad. Maybe you're over your limit on fish or your dock is too big, but... I guess changing that so that people are excited, like, Mom, go get the kids. The DNR officer is coming. Exactly. That's, that's what we want. And actually, our, our uh, conservation officers are a wealth of information. And a lot of people say, oh, good, the DNR officer is coming. I'm going to ask you know, him or her where the hot fishing spot is because they are the ones that know. Have you been, ever been asked? Do you know where all the hot fishing spots are in the state? 
Or is that like a, a state secret that you're not allowed to divulge? Um, I, I think the reality is, although I love spending time outdoors, um, I, in this job you probably spend less than, you know, we have a whole field uh, staff, and so we have fisheries people and wildlife people and conservation officers in the field, and, and I think everybody knows you ask them long before you ask the commissioner. <laughs> oh, you could collect this and put it in your matchmaking service. It would be great. Um, I know that uh, it, it felt like everyone was talking about invasive species a couple of years ago. In fact, we did several shows about it, and now it seems like people aren't talking as much. Does that mean things have gotten better, or are things still bad? Uh-oh. Uh, no, I don't think they've gotten better. I think um, perhaps people have um, gotten more accustomed to uh, invasive species being an issue in our lakes. Um, but it's, it's still very much a topic of conversation. Uh, actually, it was a, a big topic of conversation during the legislative session. Uh, the DNR and, and the governor put forward a proposal to raise the aquatic invasive species surcharge, which is a surcharge on your boat registrations, and that's the way that we fund our inspections uh, at lakes and fund um, are able to provide funds to local units of government and lake associations, too, to work with us on those kinds of things, and then the, the prevention efforts and the education and outreach. Uh, and we were successful in getting that fee raised, so we're going to be doing more inspections and more work with local partners here now in the, the next um, few years. And, and so that has fueled some more conversation uh, really about how we're going to use those dollars and about how we create effective partnerships between the state and, and local partners. You know, I'm not a DNR commissioner, but if you asked me if you really wanted to stop invasive species, you could just ban all boating across the state. And that would stop the spread right away. Well, you know, not Is that all a of... good idea? <laughs> well... Actually, what's interesting is not all, first of all, I will say that not all of the spread comes from boating. Um, a lot of it comes from the docks that move in and out and, and other docks, equipment that boom. move in and out. Solved. Um, but again, I think this is one of those issues where we want to balance the protection of our resources with people being able to use it. And so, you know, trying to find that, that balance of... Um, still providing access, not banning boating, because boating is a really important activity uh, in Minnesota, in the land of 10,000 lakes. Um, it's really important to the local economies of so many of our communities across the state. And so, um, but we want to do it in a way that is protective of our resources and, and prevents the spread of aquatic invasives. I should say that in the second half of the show, we will come to you, the audience. So if there are any questions that you might have, uh, we will get a chance to hear from you. Uh, but to just kind of finish up before we get to the improv, um, you've been at the DNR for five years now, four, give or take, and you're new to the commissioner role by five months, six mm, months or going so? Going on seven months. Seven here, months. Yeah. So I know you may not uh, be thinking of your legacy already, but... What are, I don't know, what are the big things that you'd like to see accomplished that at the end of your term, you'll wipe your hands, you'll, you know, take off your DNR officer hat that you wear around the office and say, I'm glad I accomplished blank. 
That's a great question. Um, there are a few things that I had on my to-do list when I came into this job. And the first one really is strengthening connections, Minnesotans' connections to the outdoors and making sure that all Minnesotans have the opportunity to connect to the outdoors. The, the reality is that um, if you look at the participants in uh, DNR activities and the folks who are using our facilities right now, uh, it's it's a very white crowd. It's an older crowd. It does not represent uh, the full diversity of the population of Minnesota. And so changing that uh, so that all Minnesotans have, have opportunities um, is something that is really important to me. Uh, and will be important to the department here over the next few years. Um, public participation, making sure that we are innovating the way that the public can connect with our work and that people understand why, uh, the why behind the things uh, that we do and our decisions is really important. And then, um, you know, making sure that we are effectively addressing things like aquatic invasive species, uh, chronic wasting disease in our deer herd, um, climate change, and thinking about how we address these emerging issues and things that are really going to shape our work for the future and making sure that we're well positioned as an agency to, to address those issues going forward. On those hopeful notes, please give a wonderful round of applause to your DNR commissioner, Sarah Strawman. Thank you. Stickers, just please raise your hands. I will run to you like now. Hi, if you've been with the department for five years, you've gone through a change of administration, and I would like to know um, how much your life is different now that Trump is president. How much it's different from before. Yeah, so uh, so I my previous role um, with the DNR was as an assistant commissioner, and in that role, I had oversight responsibilities for two of the seven divisions in the DNR. That was the Fish and Wildlife Division and the Parks and Trails Division. Um, we like to call those the divisions of fun at the <laughs> DNR. And, I mean, that's kind of unfair. But um, what it meant is I didn't deal with any of the regulatory parts of the agency. And so coming into the commissioner role and having to get up to speed on the regulatory process, on all of the details of um, the issues that are there. The, you know, for example, Fargo-Moorhead di uh, diversion project, the mining project, a lot of our water permitting um, work. That's all been new, and it's been fascinating. I think the other thing that um, has been really different is just the pace and the schedule and the very external facing piece of my job. So as the assistant commissioner, most of my role uh, was very internal facing, sort of the liaison between the commissioner's office and the staff working in the divisions, f occasionally filling in externally when the commissioner wasn't available. Um, but it, my work is much uh, more externally focused. And so um, I get the pleasure of traveling around the state and meeting with our staff uh, where they work, but also meeting with a lot of uh, stakeholder groups and local communities around the state. So that's been, that's been different, and, and I've really enjoyed all of that work. Oh, that... Um, 
you know, not. I think she's looking ter- for you to say something mean. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, you know, I will say. I mean, not not terribly. I think um, some of that may remain to be seen. For example, the reversal on the minerals leases up near the Boundary Waters. Um, we don't actually have a project proposal for for that uh, twin metals mine in front of us. So how that plays out has yet to be seen. Um, but most of it has not kind of trickled down yet. Sorry, I missed the I missed the Trump the part about the the federal administration change. So I you know I think we'll see how that continues to play out. Um, I, I will say that um, you know we we our goal is to stay as far away from that political environment as possible and and continue to you know do our work focusing on the science focusing on the the values of Minnesotans and um, try to keep an arm's distance from that uh, my wife Pat and I live a mile from Vermilion State Park and as you mentioned Vermilion State Park has wireless and it does not have ATVs and we really like it that way I, as commissioner are you going to be able to keep ATVs out of our state parks so, um, according to state park rules right now, there are no ATVs allowed in state parks, and I don't see us changing that wholesale. I, I certainly am not in favor of that. There, there have been proposals. The one thing I will say is that Lake Vermilion is a little bit unique in that in the master plan, when that park was acquired and and established and the master plan was created, it did in that plan specifically envision some ATV access in the part of the park that is south of 169. That part has not yet been developed. Um, So that's the one place where it may already be preordained as part of that master plan. I think there was a question here. Yeah. Hi, my husband and I uh, love camping. We have a tiny trailer, and we've camped in 20 of your 75 state parks so far. Um, And one of the things that we've noticed is that most of the folks who camp with us are white. And and you you, you noted that that an important part is diversity and and sort of um, encouraging diversity of people who access parks and and the DNR. So, So how specifically will you do that? What... What tactics, what tactics do you have that will help to encourage folks of color to be able to access those resources? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, first of all, let me just ask, do you have your state park passport if you've yep. counted 20? Fabulous. I, got, I started a new passport, too, when I started this commissioner job. I think I'm up to 12, so I have, <laughs> I have a long way to go. Um, so so um, there's a number of things uh, that, that we are doing to encourage um, greater diversity in the folks who use our state parks. One of those things is we have a great program in our state parks um, division called I Can, and it's a skill building series. And what it is designed to do, so we have an I Can Camp program, and I Can Fish program, and I Can Paddle program. And particularly in the, the camping, it's an opportunity for families who have not camped and don't know the first thing about what kind of equipment you need to bring, what you know should you be prepared for, how do you put up a tent, how do you make a campfire. Um, they can sign up for one of these ICANN camp programs 
and all the equipment is provided, and you get to camp along with you know staff who show you all of those skills. And so it breaks down one of those barriers, which is just lack of previous experience, and particularly for parents who may want to take their kids out on the first time. You don't want to be embarrassed in front of your kids that you don't know how to put up the tent, and when they're ready for some more is that you don't know how to make the campfire. So that's, that's one of the things we're doing. Um, we're also looking at... Um, you know, some of the uh, things that make that experience culturally relevant. And so one of the things that we have learned is that there um, are ethnic groups that prefer to camp in groups um, because camping in larger family units is really important to them as part of the experience. And so we have added uh, group sites at some of our campgrounds and ones that can um, accommodate both tent sites as well as trailer sites. They have some electric hookup and then have um, some group uh, picnic space. So that's another thing that we're doing. And then we're doing a lot of outreach with um, diverse communities. So we have some folks who are specifically devoted to outreach in the Hispanic Latino communities. We're doing some programming with Univision in Spanish. We have a couple of staff um, in our Parks and Trails Division and in our Fish and Wildlife Division who are native Spanish speakers, and so they can do programming. Um, in Spanish, we have um, in our Fish and Wildlife Division, I think our first uh, staff member from the Karen community uh, who can do programming. And then we have, um, for a long time, had Southeast Asian community outreach as well. And so making sure that we have people who uh, can speak uh, in native languages to them and help talk about the opportunities that are even available are some of the things that we're doing. Other questions? Yeah. So from where does your passion in the outdoors stem? Um, so uh, my mother's here in the audience with me. Um, you know, what I will say is, I mean, we didn't do a lot of camping as a family, but um, we spent a lot of time outdoors in the summer. And uh, I grew up in St. Paul. We, I remember taking uh, our bikes, putting them all in the car, and going down to the Mississippi River and riding the trails at Hidden Falls Park and uh, things like that. We spent time in, in the state parks uh, in the summer at Fort Snelling at the beach uh, and... and uh, Taylor's Falls, hiking uh, along the St. Croix there. Um, and, and then uh, in the summers, uh, we went to a resort for a number of years. And so I think that's where I learned to fish and learned to water ski and enjoy being at the lake. And I would say that's kind of where that evolved in terms of, you know, my um, interest in Minnesota's outdoors. And then in college, I had the opportunity to spend some time in Costa Rica and there just is no uh, better place in the world to, to really develop a love for the outdoors and for nature and really to, to see kind of that intersection of science and uh, people and people trying to live off the land as well as preserve uh, those resources. And so that really helped shape my passion as well. Yes. Yeah, hi, my name is Larry. I like to talk about uh, an area in northeast Minnesota, the Boundary Waters, and it should be protected from sulfide mining, which is one of the most dangerous and polluting um, um, in, uh, industries in America. It's always caused uh, significant pollution, especially near water. Uh, Governor Dayton has promised to protect the Boundary Waters area for, 
watershed from sulfide mining, and I'm wondering, are you going to continue this on with this promise? Well, the first thing I'll say is we, we don't have any proposal in front of us right now to look at. So our, our role in that um, project is uh, as, a, as a regulator in terms of the, the permit to mine. Certainly we'll have some water permits as well. Uh, so our role really kicks in when we get that proposal in front of us, and we will be looking both at the environmental review and so looking at uh, any potential environmental impacts as well as then the permit itself. Um, you know, obviously, uh, I agree with you. The Boundary Waters is a really special place. I worked for a number of years for the Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness, uh, my family and I have camped in the Boundary Waters, and it's a place that, you know, we feel really passionate about. Um, so our process, when, when that proposal comes in front of us, will be to make sure that, you know, uh, if, that we protect those, those values. And so we will have to take a look at that project proposal. We will go through the environmental review process to look at, at what the potential for environmental effects are, and then we will have to also go through the permitting process. And that process is really dictated by what's in our state laws, in our rules, and, and then uh, there's a really robust public comment process in that as well. So we will take the, the science, the data, and the information, as well as the, the public input to look at all of the issues that are associated once we know what specifically the project is. Coming over here. Hi, I'm... Um, Actually, really interested after seeing the skit now to ask uh, if you do know the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow over Lake Minnetonka. <laughs> but uh, really, um, I've read recently that uh, the common loon has been dying of West Nile virus. Uh, what's happening there, and what is the DNR doing to address it? Yeah, um, I can't tell you the um, details on a, on the sparrows, but they are fun to watch over the lake. I have some sparrows nesting in our dock canopy right now, and uh, it's really fun. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you a lot right now about the loons and West Nile because it's a relatively recent discovery. It's, it has gotten a lot of press recently. Um, West Nile obviously is not new. It's not something that is uncommon to birds, but to have it appearing now in loons and people seeing dead loons is obviously really disturbing. The loon is a really iconic uh, species and, and something that we all identify with in, in Minnesota. Um, so, you know, really what we know is that um, is that dead loons have started appearing. We have tested them. They've tested positive for West Nile. And so at this point, we are doing additional work. If people find dead loons, we're asking them to, to let us know so that we can do additional testing and try to figure out exactly what is going on and if this is a, a larger issue or if this is, you know, something that uh, is, is temporary based on a certain set of conditions this year. Any other questions? Anything you'd like to ask? Yeah. I also read recently that our waters are impaired. Quite a large percentage of our um, lakes, rivers, streams are impaired. In 10 years' time, where will we be? Will the number go up? Will the number go down? Are we keeping up with it? Is it bigger than we can handle? That's a great question. I think, um, I mean, I don't, I don't have a perfect crystal ball on that to know where we might be in 10 years. Um, what I will say is that the trends are not good. Um, and, you know, that we, 
along with our other agencies. So the DNR um, works less on water quality, more on the quantity issues, but we work really closely with the Pollution Control Agency, which um, has the, the delegated authority from the federal EPA for, for water quality. We work with the Department of Ag, the Department of Health, um, as all of, and the Board of Water and Soil Resources, as all of the agencies that have some piece of jurisdiction around water. And, um, you know, we work both to protect the waters that are not impaired as well as to try to restore uh, those that are impaired. And, you know, what I'd like to say is we are making progress in some areas. Um, in other areas, it's going to be a long-term fix. The waters didn't get impaired overnight, and uh, they're not going to get fixed overnight. And so I, 10 years may actually be a short time period for some of those areas where you really need to address the source of the pollutants at the watershed rather than kind of dealing with it where you may be seeing the issues. So, um, you know, I, I'd like to say I think... Um, we have really good information. We're better organized. We're better coordinated. We know where the issues are. It's how, how fast um, can we get the funding and how fast can we get, in many cases, uh, private landowners you know, to, to come to the table and work with us in those really targeted places where we know we need to address. We have time for one or two more questions. If anybody, yes, I'll go to the front here. Just wondering if the DNR is adequately resourced with staff and funding or if we should be doing some lobbying on the agency's behalf. I really appreciate that question. That's a, that's a really good question. One of the things that most people I probably don't know about the DNR is we receive pretty relatively little general fund um, funding from the state, we, our budget is only, it's only about 20% from the general fund. Most of the funding to our agency comes from user-generated fees, so our park entrance fees fund parks and trails. Our fishing license fees fund fisheries, hunting licenses, wildlife, et cetera. Um, permit fees, some of our water work. And so what that means is those funds are really only dedicated to those direct purposes um, for which those users are paying those fees. And so um, in some areas, you know, it's sufficient. In other areas, it's not sufficient, particularly, uh, you know, one is inflation erodes your buying power when your fees are static and your costs are going up. And secondly, when your user base may be declining. So we are losing hunters and anglers, for example, and that affects the amount of funding we have to work with. So, you know, I would say right now we're in a, we're in a pretty good place. We came out of the last legislative session with um, a cost of living increase, and, and we are certainly able to operate. But I think long term, there's a concern about being so heavily funded on user fees if that base declines. And it's really important that we keep up with inflation. And so, you know, I always let people know that, um, if these things are important to you, you know, we don't get a lot of general fund dollars, and maybe, maybe that's something that people should, should think about. As a way to support staff, have you thought about issuing a complaint permit that you're not allowed to <laughs> formally complain unless you have proper identification? It would, think about it. Don't say no. I was just wondering, I feel like the deer ticks, which is the ones that cause Lyme disease, are more prevalent now than they were 10, 20 years ago. Is that true or is that just anecdotal? 
You know, I don't know that I've seen any um, numbers on that, but I, I would I would say yes. I think it is true, um, and and it. I, you know, we're seeing more and more tick diseases too. I, I will tell you that has been a huge issue for our staff um, because of the number of ticks, the increase in the number of tick bites, and the just the um, general increase in the number of ticks that are carrying Lyme's disease. That's probably one of the most uh, present safety issues for us as a staff. It really has become become a problem. So I wish I had specific numbers for you, but yeah, I don't think your impression is, is wrong on that. And it's really, um, it actually is one of those things that keeps people from, from going outside. And, you know, I think the reality is if you prepare yourself properly, so we, we train very carefully on, um, you know, wear your long pants, put your gaiters on to keep your cuffs and, and spray three layers of protection when you're out, you, you know, you're fine, but it is something that people need to be diligent about. We ended the last conversation talking about what you hope to kind of leave as a legacy. Um, in thinking uh, more kind of broadly, how do you hope the state of Minnesota will change in terms of the DNR and our natural resources? Well, I hope, I hope Minnesotans view the DNR as a trusted agency. I hope people say that, you know, have a view that we are science-based, that we listen, that we hear uh, what people's concerns are, and they understand our decisions. And I hope that people will continue to view our natural resources as, um, as uh, you know, doing well in the state and, and that we ha- offer high-quality recreation opportunities. I think people feel that way now. People would, would rate them very high. Um, you know, our park systems offer great experiences. Our fishing is great. We offer a diversity uh, of opportunities, you know, shore fishing, lake, multiple species. Um, we and so I really I hope that people um, continue to see that as a as a value for our state and continue to think that we offer high quality resources in our state. Everyone, please give a round of applause to Minnesota DNR Commissioner Thank you. Sarah Stroman. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.